Redlands, California, 10.50 a.m., 102.3 f.m., 106.5 f.m., and streaming live also on Turfs Up Radio out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Welcome to the Water Zone, everybody. Sorry about the slow start there. There was a special report from NBC. We had uh, NBC's news radio we had queued up, so uh, had to wait our turn in line. Hey, Chris. Uh, most... Yes, hey, Rob's there. I'm here now. I guess the fires are doing a bad thing here. <laughs> yeah, so a tough day. I was just about to tell all the listeners uh, that uh, it's been an exciting day here in Southern California, especially in the Inland Empire, Riverside, Redlands area, uh, both at Toro, where you and I work, Rob, and um, here in Sa- uh, San Bernardino and Redlands area, uh, where the studio is. Yeah, it's been uh, pretty bad. Uh, and as you said, we had 29 or 24 fires. There's 24 fires all together that are burning now, all within, right, minimum minimum containment. For those of you who uh, who were listening last week, um, you know we had an exciting show. We've got uh, a new guest this week. Uh, I'll let uh, Ingi Biscona, our ag host, uh, introduce our new guest when that uh, when that time is uh, is ready. Hey, Rob and Chris, thank you. It's been uh, uh, great to hear from you this evening, and we're looking forward to another great segment of the Water Zone Ag podcast, which is available on iTunes afterwards for our listening audience if they want to listen to it again or let a friend know to uh, uh, listen to it for the first time. Our topic tonight is uh, something that's top of the line in the news lately, and we have a couple of great guests to discuss, and it's it's called Climate Smart Agriculture. And we have with us uh, a couple of heavyweights on this topic from uh, even the international scene as well as the national scene. Um, it's going to be Ernie Shea, who is president of Solutions from the Land, and Fred Yoder, who is a farmer and chair of the North American Climate Smart Ag Association. So welcome to the show, Ernie and Fred. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes, happy to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. You know, for our listening audience, let let me give them a little more background about you before we dive into this exciting topic of climate-smart agriculture, which uh, can help us in in society with a lot of the issues we're facing today. So Ernie uh, Shea is the president and CEO of Natural Resource Solutions, LLC, and he was formerly the CEO of the National Association of Conservation Districts. And he was also the Assistant Secretary of Agriculture for Agricultural Development and Resource Conservation in the state of Maryland. Um, He is part of this organization called Solutions from the Land, which is guided by a board of directors and composed of ag, forestry, and conservation thought leaders, and leads that organization as its president today. So, uh, again, thank you uh, for appearing today, Ernie. Um, And now we'll introduce uh, Fred Yoder, who is also one of Solutions from the Land's co-chairs. He is a corn, soybean, and wheat producer, and he's past president of the National Corn Growers Association. He's also the past president of the Ohio Corn and Wheat Growers Association, and as we'll be discussing today, he's the chair of the North American Climate Smart Ag Alliance, also known as NAXA. So, Ernie and Fred, before we get into solutions from the land and climate smart ag, tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got into agriculture and and climate issues in particular. Ernie, how about if you go first? Okay, happy to do so. 
Well, I've spent the last four decades working directly with farmers, ranchers, forest, and woodland owners across the country. Uh, I spent well, probably three decades heavily focused on soil and water conservation work uh, with the goal of trying to help the land managers uh, of agricultural working lands manage them in a way that they're maintaining productivity, they're economically viable, but they're also delivering environmental services. That work took us into every county literally in the country, and we saw examples of innovation and leadership underway that always showed me that farmers were striving to maintain sustainable operations. They wanted to be delivering multiple solutions from the land. And that is how we got into where we are today, talking about climate change. Because when we're managing these landscapes in a sustainable way, we're not just producing food, feed, fiber, fuel now, but we're also producing important ecosystem services. We're filtering water, we're retaining water, we're enhancing biodiversity. We are sinking carbon in the ground. And all of these ecosystem services are now being appreciated as having a lot of value and particularly the climate change solutions we deliver. So I'm happy to be working with Fred and a group of volunteer leaders that are redefining the core function of agriculture from a sector that produces commodities to really a sector that improves quality of life. Yeah, it's a it's a really exciting topic, and this uh, top this uh, um, you know working lands concept has come up in the show before, and um, uh, we really look forward to hearing more about that uh, the rest of the hour. So thank you, Ernie um, and Fred. Yourself, did you grow up on the farm that you're uh, running now, or did you come into it uh, another way? No, I'm a fourth generation farmer, and I've fourth been farming all my life. And uh, uh, I took over the operation back in the uh, '80s from my father, and uh, uh, along with with the uh, the farming, I, uh, we also have a retail seed business. We've been selling seed for 40 years, and what what I've always had a passion about was you know how do we do it better, and how do we you know one of the things that that I saw uh, with tillage is the fact that uh, the longer you till the the or less the more organic matter you lose and, and I thought we had to reverse that when you start thinking about you know our our whole uh, existence depends on this small membrane of of soil and uh, you know we should be building soil instead of losing and you know it always bothered me when we talked about uh, you know uh, uh, this you know uh, you know five tons of, of topsoil loss per year was acceptable and that's just not not good for me, and so I'm, I'm more of the uh, way. How do we build soil? And so uh, I got involved with, uh, with, uh, uh, well, with Ernie, and, and uh, we actually got started with biofuels and how we uh, we looked at uh, at the farmers having a chance to, to develop uh, uh, renewable fuels that can actually uh, be carbon uh, helpful and as well as uh, provide income for farmers as well. So as we went from that, and we we actually. Uh, went along that for a, a good long while, what, 10 years or so, or any, I think it was 10 years. Then we, we formed Solutions from the Land, which that's our hub now. And so we we have all different kinds of things coming out of Solutions from the Land, such as the 25 by 25 program for, for renewable fuels, but also the NAXA program. And then we have all these state programs that, uh, because that's really what you got to get down to is, is how's a farmer farm in, in, in different watersheds, different volumes of, of water and, and uh, the topography is different. Soil 
types. There's so many soil types and so many different fertility levels. How do we come up with tools in the toolbox that everyone can, can actually uh, benefit from that? But you have to look at it from the economic standpoint more than you can the, uh, you know, the, the whole thing about the climate change. So as you know, uh, many farmers are very reluctant to talk about climate change, but, but if you talk about economics and how do you improve soil health, how do you develop more risk management tools such as higher uh, organic matter and, and uh, things like that, and cover crops and so forth uh, that we can talk about later. But uh, farmers respond to economic challenges and, and looking for ways to mitigate, mitigate risk. And that's what I've been worried, I've been really uh, working on the last few years is talking to farmers, getting them to think, to think of, of different ways to do things on the farm rather than you know, the worst thing we can tell farmers, uh, what farmers can tell us is when you ask them why they do something something on the farm, they say, because that's the way we've always done it. That's not a good answer. we always got to right. look for better ways to do things. So right. That's how we I'm involved. We've been farming a long time, and, and I can honestly say that uh, my farm is the most productive it's ever been since since I've, I've been farming it. And that's what my father asked me to do is make it more productive, and I think I have. Yeah, well, fourth generation, probably 80 years of it, um, I'm... I'm uh, I'm sure it's a lot different than it was 80 years ago, and um, as you say, better with new technology, and not necessarily a plow. I mean, it's funny, you're saying that we're going from one of the major inventions in agriculture, you know, tilling the soil and inventing the plow, to realizing that that had some unintended consequences, right? <laughs> that Absolutely. We, we want to get away from that now, and now we're kind of reinventing how can we do it the old way, but more more productive. So, uh, So fascinating. Thanks for... For being a farmer and um, helping helping to feed us all. Um, so, Ernie, as president of Solutions from the Land, please give us kind of an overview of the organization's vision and how it works, and, and you know how it's funded. Well, Solutions from the Land came about because we were tired of being beat up as a as a sector. The farmer leaders that uh, came together to create this not-for-profit named it Solutions from the Land because that's what we're about. When we farm and ranch in a sustainable manner, we're delivering all kinds of solutions. Our vision, and we've, we've, we've addressed a fairly short-term vision, and that is that by the year 2030, um, the farms and ranchers and forests across the country are going to be at the forefront of resolving food system, energy, environmental climate challenges, and achieving sustainable development goals. So we have our eye on what the world is seeking to bring about, which is transformational change from lands across the globe on all continents to address these 17 sustainable development goals that the United Nations has set up. And the good news is that agriculture is well positioned to be seen and valued as the solution set for many of these goals, at least half of them. The uh, areas of focus that we've chosen to concentrate on are clean energy, uh, climate change, and large landscape-scale conservation practices. And we do that, as Fred mentioned, by bringing farmer leaders, conservation partners, value chain partners, academic business partners into problem-solving forums where they together craft the solution that they're going to advance and then work together to create the enabling policies or the market mechanisms to bring them about. So it's a much different model of operating than what I grew up in, which was largely a 
oh, a, a 20th century model of government intervention where uh, most of us working in the sector looked up at the government for guidance, direction, decisions. And we've come to appreciate that that has limitations. And while government certainly has a role, our model doesn't put government at the top, but it puts government at the table where collaboration is undertaken, where incentive-based payments are uh, formed and, and advanced, and where we're thinking in an integrated way about managing the land. One of the challenges that we faced as we worked our way through the 20th century was that every five to 10 years, there was yet another crisis, another suite of programs that had to be delivered. And farmers were finding themselves torn between managing for water quality, managing for water quantity, managing for endangered species, managing for carbon, and the list goes on and on. So our model is how do we integrate these in a way that is economically viable for a farmer and simultaneously deliver these multiple solutions from the land? Yeah, it sounds like a, a real win-win instead of uh, depending on, you know, the government payment system and really a handout uh, for when disasters happen or, um, you know, to help mitigate risk, that now you're more in control of, of your own sustainability, of being financially sustainable, but at the same time helping the planet be more sustainable. Is that kind of, kind of how it's working? Yeah, and it's, it's not perfect. It's hard work. Uh, this, yeah. this concept of delivering solutions from the land can only work if everyone is working together to help enable the farmer to be as successful as they can be. And Fred hit the nail on the head when he talked about economics. If these operations are not economically viable, they're not going to be delivering the water quality, the habitat, the climate change solutions that we want and need. So we've got to think differently. Instead of regulating land to deliver siloed outcomes, we're trying to empower the landowner to make the investments and manage the land in a way that is going to deliver a whole host of goods and services. And let's not forget one of the most important ones is feeding a global population that's going to exceed 10 billion people by mid-century. So how do we do that without destroying the earth? How do we do that right. without expanding the footprint of agriculture? And that's where uh, technologies like the water management systems that Toro has are so critically important to help us use the land in a sustainable way. Yeah, that is the million-dollar question. How do we feed 10, million, 10 billion people without trashing the environment? So, yeah, so, so happy to see the work that you're doing to help us meet that goal. Um, Fred, you are co-chair of a different organization. Uh, well, you're, you're co-chair of Solutions for the Land, but you're chair of a, a different organization called the North American Climate Smart Ag Alliance, NAXA. Tell us a little bit about that and how it works and how it's funded. So, so uh, NAXA is, is a regional um, part of, of the Global Alliance of Climate Smart Agriculture, JAXA. I know we got a lot of uh, these acronyms that we have to keep straight, but the Global Alliance of Climate Smart Agriculture, we've been involved in that. Solutions from the land came, uh, have been going to those meetings uh, internationally for, uh, for several years, even from the very beginning. And one thing that was clear as we, uh, as we started this process, it, it originally started with, Basically, no, nobody uh, 
except the ministers of agriculture of the different countries were actually doing the work. And uh, so we soon discovered that there were very few farmers there. And in, 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 in reality, if you're going to have a plan to revamp and, and reinvent uh, agricultural practices, you better have farmers at the table. And that's why we decided we needed to be, uh, and SFL has always been that way, but we need to decide that, that we would go ahead and form the, the North American Climate Smart Agriculture Alliance to be a part of that. We think we can do a lot of things uh, that the rest of the world can, can emulate uh, because uh, we are, there's one thing about American uh, agriculture, we are very, very productive. And can we do things better? Sure, we can do things better, but, uh, and we're, uh, a lot of us are working very hard to make it better. So, so we're, what we're trying to do is, is maybe become the template for the rest of the world in some ways. Uh, and again, I want to repeat that there's there's different watersheds, there's different soil types, there's different topographies, and so what we want to do is is develop as many tools that we can put in the toolbox so that anybody that uh, that needs to, or wants to or desires to uh, to do better and have you know some new risk management tools and also some new economic tools um, that they can reach in the toolbox and get that. And that's one of the reasons yeah, I... that, uh, that we we also formed the state. Uh, uh, meetings too. Uh, we, we recently just got done with one in Ohio here. That uh, it was more. It started more on uh, food security, but uh, it ended up being uh, a really good exercise where folks could understand what was possible on the farm, as well as the, the intricacies of of, of how uh, the infrastructure needs to all work together. Yeah, and I, I I bet that when when you kind of recruit people to work with you that. Initially, they might be skeptical, especially with the name Climate Smart, you know, ag. But once they find out what it's really about is to make them more sustainable as well as the planet, is, does it get a little bit easier? Do you, do you have a lot of people signing up and wanting to work with you? Well, actually, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, reasons why we call it Climate Smart instead of Climate Change. Um, you know, uh, let's face it, I mean, the climate has been changing forever, and uh, I think it's it's changing at a much faster rate today, but and really what we're trying to get farmers to to really accept is the fact that we have to adapt to whatever yeah. the climate coming coming to tell us to do, and farmers seem to be able to uh, to reckon with that. You know, the, the climate smart means you're just basically taking the tools and and making things better. How do you how do you be successful? How do you be productive? Uh, in in a in a new type of atmosphere that we have today, you know, I've used the the statement. Uh, when I grew up, well, we used to farm uh, and, and plant crops, for, you know, from the 1st of May all the way to the end of June. Today, if you miss your 10 days to two-week uh, window of opportunity, you will not have optimum yield. So you, the, the window has gotten quite narrow. But there's also other things you can do with, with, with extreme uh, weather, uh, high, high uh, rain events and things like that that you have to work through. So so what are we faced with and how do we adapt? And so that, but that really resonates with farmers is, is when you talk about the economics of survival as well as being productive. So, so you kind of go out at the, kind of a, a different way than what you might think. But once you get farmers uh, convinced that, uh, that you know, for instance, conservation till or no-till with cover crops and all kinds of reducing your, uh, you know, your inputs and things like that, and they see that the economic advantages they all of a sudden have a much different change of heart, and, and so that they, they're willing to get on board and, and understand that actually less is born when you yeah. start thinking about how you work the land. Yeah, so what you're saying, it's all about the presentation, how, how you approach them and, and get them on board. So that's great. Certainly. It's kind of changed the message. All right, well, Ernie, um, 
agriculture is often listed as a major contributor of greenhouse gases. Um, please share with our listening audience how ag can actually reduce its contribution of greenhouse gases, but also become a sink for greenhouse gases. So that's a, that's a great point that we're focused on very extensively right now uh, within the NAXA alliance that Fred talked about and our work at the global level. And what it really centers in on is a conversation not just about greenhouse gas emission reductions or carbon sequestration, we think of as mitigation, but a suite of activities that, that actually will enable agriculture to meet these many sustainable development goals. So when we talk about climate change solutions, we frame it through the Climate Smart Agriculture platform. And that involves three areas of conversation and focus. The first is sustainable intensification of production. How do we, how do we ensure that we're going to be meeting the food system needs of the world without destroying the earth? The second area of focus is adaptive management and how can we become more resilient in face of these changing climatic conditions, whether it's drought or floods or invasive species. These changes are real and it requires significant work in that arena of adaptive management. And then the third pillar of climate smart agriculture is the solution uh, arena where we can help either reduce or offset greenhouse gas emissions. So one big area that we can contribute is soil carbon sequestration. When we farm with uh, reduced tillage, no-till, and cover crop combinations, we're producing biomass that through photosynthesis is pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and sinking it in the ground and simultaneously improving the organic content and the productivity of the soil. It can hold more uh, more water. It's got more microbes. So that's an example of the win-win and benefiting both the planet and the farm. But we do other things. We can produce bioenergy where we're raising biomass that can be then transformed into power or liquid transportation fuels. And the good news is, particularly in the case of corn ethanol, we are getting cleaner and cleaner in terms of the fuel quality while petroleum gasoline is getting dirtier and dirtier. So mm -hmm. today, USDA tells us that the greenhouse gas emissions of corn ethanol are on average 43% less than petroleum uh, uh, fuel, uh, fossil fuels. That's a huge contribution that the transportation sector can make, and we're at the center of it because we're raising biomass on farmlands that goes into the production of the fuel. Another, maybe just a third example, because uh, we could go on at some length, would be the way animal agriculture can contribute by sustainable grassland management with grazing systems that are improving the health of the grasslands, which in turn sequester more carbon. And in the case of confined animal operations, we can capture the methane emissions coming off of manure and transform it into a renewable natural gas that can be used to offset fossil fuels. So those are just some examples of practices that are already being uh, utilized across the country, and our job is to help other farmers adopt them and scale them up. Yes, and I have also read that farmers 
are actually being paid to sink carbon. And maybe Fred can comment on that, being a farmer. Has there... Has anybody actually paid you to sink carbon so that you're not only, you know, ecologically more sustainable, but economically more sustainable as well? Well, we're working on that. I know there's some carbon markets in Canada and also uh, in the states here, California, and we're, we're working hard to develop, uh, you know, protocols that, that can actually uh, uh, have the metrics to measure exactly what we can do. Uh, we're, we're working on that. We're not there yet, but that's one of the things that we're constantly striving for is, is getting paid for ecosystem services. You know, if, if you can, uh, for instance, take it this past year, you know, clear across the Midwest, we had an extremely wet spring. Our right. planting was, was delayed by, by weeks. I mean, uh, we normally plant, you know, start planting mid-April, and we didn't plant anything until June. And so uh, many, I think Ohio is one of the the, the, the leaders in, in preventive planting uh, designations where farmers just simply could not, they ran out of time and didn't plant anything. And and what, what we thought is if you just think if you could plant a cover crop, it, you know, after the uh, the due dates of planting for corn and soybeans, would, what if you uh, what if you could plant a crop that, that would sequester several tons of, of carbon uh, and pay them for that uh, when, when they can't plant a regular crop? So I, I envision the future where we can actually uh, look at carbon as a, as a, as a crop and, and if we can provide those ecosystem services for, for, you know, civil society, just think about how how quickly we can uh, turn this thing around. It's it's low hanging fruit as far as solutions to climate change, and farmers can participate in it and be rewarded economically for that. At the same time, raising uh, uh, you know the the commodities that they need to to you know for animal feed and, and human feed. So we think there's tremendous opportunities out there. We're we're not there yet, but we're getting there. Yeah, so by by changing the way you farm, you you can stop releasing carbon into the air by discontinuing tillage, and then actually do other things. All those things that um, that Ernie just listed, and maybe you have some more examples, Fred, of how we can actually become a sink in agriculture for carbon. So maybe industries, you know, in the industrial centers, will actually pay a farmer to sink the carbon that maybe the industry is putting into the air as a process of, you know, the product, you know, maybe the auto industry or whatever is making a car, putting carbon into the air and done the best job that they can to minimize that, but still has some carbon going into the air and then maybe pay a farmer to sink um, an equivalent amount. Is that kind of how it would work? Well, sort of, but let's, I'll give you an example of, of how a farmer can, can immediately uh, be a, a contributor to uh, the solution, and that's with cover crops. So, so in my mind, uh, the best thing we could possibly do is have something growing on the soil at all times. For instance, uh, right now, even, even though we're not done uh, harvesting corn yet, we hope to finish this week, every single acre of soybean and corn that we grew has a cover crop planted. We flew on the cereal rye and the corn before it was even harvested, and all of the soybeans, we followed it right up and we, we sowed uh, cereal rye as well. And so what we want to do is have something growing at all times. And what that does is if you have any excess fertilizer or, or nutrients that have not been utilized in, in growing that crop, that, that cover crop will, will scavenge it and keep it in, this, in that plant. And so at the same time, we're, we're sequestering carbon because you, you, anytime you have something that's uh, making photosynthesis, you are actually uh, you're creating a, a chance for carbon to be sunk in the soil. And so, mm -hmm. so there, just, by, just by adding cover crops uh, along with no-till, 
uh, th- these are things that are actually great things to do, and there's, there's good economic reasons for doing it. At the same time, produce uh, those solutions that we're looking for, and that's one we, why we call the solutions from the land. So that's one way to get farmers to talk about the you know the economic advantage of, of maybe less tillage and uh, and more growing things, which can actually you know uh, scavenge those uh, extra nutrients. In Ohio, of course, we've got some problems with uh, with uh, excess nutrients going into the uh, Lake Erie watershed, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's one of the things we're using as a, as a solution for that is just as cover crops to to gather in those uh, nutrients and use it for the next crop. Yeah. Yeah. So ecosystem services and sinking carbon, carbon markets, these are all new things, all things that we need to do, and it's just great to hear how agriculture is being so innovative here. Now, Ernie, you have been to a number of international meetings, and these are places that we don't normally hear about in the context of farmers going to meetings. (laughs) But in the last 12 months alone, you've gone to Bonn, Germany, and Kronivia, Fiji, and Katowice, Poland. And I can imagine that there were a lot of people talking about a lot of different things there, and here we have some American farmers at the table. What, what are your objectives there, and have you been able to get some positive outcomes from these, from these uh, meetings from all over the world? So the UN and the world is a pretty complicated place, as you might imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and imagine. the reality is the countries of the world are on a glide path to try to save the earth. And they are writing plans in multiple UN forums to address climate change challenges. And the good news for agriculture is the world is waking up and starting to see agriculture not as the source of emissions exclusively. And in some places it is. Uh, In the United States, we are not. We are a, a net reducer of greenhouse gas emissions in factory forestry. But there is an awakening that agricultural lands properly managed can be a major solution pathway for dealing with the climate crisis. So the UN system through the United Nations Framework uh, Climate Change Convention is trying to figure out how the world, the countries of the world, and the business partners can team up and help enable farmers to farm in a way that delivers these climate solutions. So Fred noted a little while ago that when we started to go to these meetings, we observed very quickly that the most important people in the room were not there, and that's farmers. And we lifted that point up that if you really want to get solutions from the land, you better have farmers at the table. Mm -hmm. So we took that uh, challenge to the UN system they responded by welcoming us in, and that has taken us to the places where the United Nations Climate Convention meets, where the um, uh, Foreign Agricultural Organization meets, any platform where the world leaders come together to write a roadmap for the future of agriculture is where we're trying to show up. And there's a very important one that's underway right now, and Fred and I will be going to Santiago, Chile here the first week of December to help shape the development of the Cornivia Joint Work on Agriculture. And that is a Tahiti name for the very first ever agricultural blueprint roadmap, if you will, for addressing the climate challenge. 
And the countries of the world are coming together over a three-year period to offer recommendations that can be adopted by other governments across the world to help agricultural lands reduce their carbon emissions and deliver climate solutions. If they get it right, that's going to open all kinds of opportunities for U.S. agriculture and our business partners to deploy the practices, the systems, the technologies globally that we've been utilizing here in the United States. So water management is a huge issue across the globe. Uh, we know that with the technology that companies like Toro is advancing, that we can reduce the water use efficiency, the amount of energy it takes to move water around. We can utilize it in a much more precise way that enhances crop growth, that will enhance soil carbon sequestration, that will accelerate nutrient uptake into the plant and reduce nutrient leaching. So there are all kinds of things that we talk about in this Cornivia process, uh, ranging from nutrient management to water management to uh, the role of livestock in the future of climate um, uh, solutions. And we are bringing farmers into these global talks to provide their real-world experiences and expertise. So it's an ongoing process. It's a, it's a clumsy, slow process, but it is what it is. And with 193 countries participating, and all kinds of special interest groups trying to influence them, uh, you can appreciate the complexity of the conversations, the, the duration of the, of the conversations, and the multi-stakeholders that are all competing uh, to get the attention of policymakers to write this roadmap in a way that benefits them. John, I can only imagine the complexity of that. 193 countries and. Would you say that, you know, the United States' agriculture, American agriculture is kind of driving that process, or are you learning a lot from, say, European or South American or African um, agricultural communities? Is it really really an interchange, or are, are we really leading the pack on practices? I think it's both. I, I think we recognize that we have multiple tools in our toolbox that we've been honing and refining over the years, and we're sharing those globally. We're advancing guiding principles that we think are going to be uh, adopted that, that I guess you would say put us in a driver's seat, and one of which is we've got to be sure that all of our decisions are science-based. We have to put farmers at the center of decision-making, and those are important guiding principles that we have shared globally and have gotten global support for it. But we also are learning from management systems in use in other parts of the country. There's a lot of emphasis on agroecological solutions in Africa that we're watching and learning from and integrating into our uh, approach to managing landscapes to deliver climate and food system benefits. But all along, we remind these negotiators, these decision makers within the UN system that there is no silver bullet and that they better be embracing and adopting technology delivered uh, solutions because those are the ones that will be sustainable over time and can scale. So uh, we're very thankful that 
Pomeroy has been a member of the uh, North American Climate Smart Ag Alliance and helping to inform us as farmer leaders into these meetings about the importance of technology that, um, that sometimes get lost when other platforms are arguing for turning back the clock and abandoning technology and managing the land the way we used to 100 years ago in this country. So uh, it's important work, um, and that's why we're there. Yeah, well, thank you for the call out to um, to Toro. Yeah, we, we all are, that's why we're here. We're trying to make technology that will improve water use efficiency, and I like to say it as resource use efficiency, you know, not only the water, but all of the inputs to ag more efficient to produce more. We can't turn back the clock all the way to 100 years ago because we only had a billion people on Earth then. <laughs> and, you know, we have seven or eight today, and as you said, we're heading towards 10. So uh, with 10 billion people, we have to do things better. Well, that's, that's really exciting. So once you have this blueprint, this um, ag blueprint, as you mentioned, that you'll develop in Chile, what what would be like a, a practical outcome of that right away? Is is it we really looking for funding to help farmers transition into these new ways of doing things, or just to have them paid by industry? That's part of it. Um, so what it becomes is a blueprint for corporations to invest, for um, governments to adopt enabling policies, and things like funding basic conservation water management programs are critically important. And, you know, we kind of ebb and flow with that in this country. When there's a crisis of soil erosion proportion like we had in the 1930s, there was a big response on the part of government and industry to come together and solve that problem. Um, We've, over generations, had major investments in water storage that were in response to crises and, and some planned growth, but a lot of it was, was crises. So our hope is that governments uh, and the industry partners will recognize the investments that are needed, the policies that are needed to support the work that Fred does every day on this farm. Yeah, be more proactive rather than reactive. It, exactly. Yeah. Well, Fred, um, you've also been to a number of meetings, and one of them was the IPCC, which we hear about in the news a lot in in, um, in association with uh, uh, reports and such about about the changing climate. IPCC, of course, um, uh, means the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And you went to the last meeting, the COP24, which is the 24th meeting of the Conference of the Parties that are meeting in Poland. So at this meeting, um, how receptive were they to the concept of ag being more actively participating in climate change solutions? Well, when you go to these meetings, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, of pre-designed uh, texts and things like that are, are, you know, a lot of speeches and things like that. And I got a chance to speak as a observer uh, after, during a, a time that uh, they allowed observers to talk and and I talked as a, as a farmer and there was very few farmers there and I think it went very well because it gave me uh, other opportunities the rest of the, the conference to talk in, in, in side meetings but I really well I was really really uh, emphasizing the fact that okay if we're all here to and you some of you want to reinvent agriculture 
you better have a, uh, the farmers at the table because uh, farmers are, are extremely uh, gifted on in avoiding certain things that they don't like, and, and not, unless they have some skin in the game, it's probably not going to work. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of farmers, uh, excuse me, there's an awful lot of people that, that think they know how to design agriculture that have never planted the first seed, <clears throat> yeah. and that's not going to work. And, and so this is this is an opportunity for everyone that that uh, that feels like, you know, let's, let's look at the outcome. What is the outcome that we all desire, and let's work toward that. Some things that uh, that you suggest that we do on the farm, we can tell you right away whether it'll work or whether it will not work. But there's possibilities, but if you if you concentrate on the outcomes that the desired outcomes, you can get there. And yeah. so that's one of the reasons that uh, that uh, I spoke as a farmer. That and I really do believe that this got to be farmer led. It's going to have to be based on economics. The farmer is not going to adopt uh, a, pro, uh, a a practice that they're going to lose money on. So. There's lots of things we can do, and that's where we, you know, we talk about ecosystem services as another way of, of, of creating some some uh, some possibilities. But also, that's also why we might need some sort some type of uh, of, of cost share, uh, possibly to get some farmers that have not uh, been willing to change uh, their practices to maybe get them to stick their toe in the water and maybe you know show show them value with cover crops or no-till and things like that. So. Yeah. And, and we we go to these meetings, you know, and we have to we have to demonstrate that we're doing some things back home that, that this is working, and because I think everyone wants to know the path forward, but uh, we all have to have you know uh, reliable and 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 suggestions that they're actually going to work, and so that's why I felt that 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 I think the words that I spoke was was very uh, well accepted, but there's also others. We had a chance to work with the World Farmers Organization. We have a good relationship with that now, and people from South Africa and and, uh, and other places in Europe that that we we can work together and and uh, and show some common ground where we can uh, you know these practices that will actually work. And because some of these ch- changes, we're going to it's going to cost money, new new machinery, new uh, technology, and things like that 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 we all have to adopt, and, and we have to see the economic return in order to do that. So. Yeah. That's where I yeah. think we're going to be successful is, is show economic return. Yeah. Well, American agriculture and even California agriculture in particular has, you know, historically invested in, in you know, uh, subsidies or, uh, you know, technology grants and so forth to the farms. I mean, in California we've had the SWEET program and the Healthy Soils Initiative. Always happy to see um, Karen Ross, our Secretary of Ag, promoting um, those issues and those funding sources to help us um, become more, you know, climate smart, um, um, productive. And I, I can imagine that that plays right into your hand, or maybe you've been part of that. I'm not. I'm not sure. How have you been interfacing with California Ag much? We sure have. Uh, Karen Ross Good. is a dear friend, and and she invited uh, both Thirty and I, and, and also our our friend Ag Carmar from California to be part of their Healthy Soils Initiative back, when, when was that, a year ago, Ernie, last August or September? Yep, this, uh, where she issued the Global Soil Health Challenge. Yes. And um, that's an example of great leadership coming out of California that we're helping to spread across the country and, and the globe. We invited Karen to come speak at the last Global Alliance of Climate Smart Agriculture about soil health and the challenge that she's issuing to governments uh, and subnationals around the world. And Karen also was invited in to speak on that same topic 
at the last Cornivia Joint Work on Agriculture workshop. So California is right uh, in the center of these conversations, not just in water, water management but in, and in healthy soils, but also in the renewable energy field where there's a lot of work underway capturing methane off of, of uh, dairy farms and converting it into a high-quality uh, non-fossil fuel. And those are win-wins for agriculture and the environment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Karen has been a uh, previous guest on the Water Zone as well as AG. They are friends of ours and friends of yours, and so happy to see everybody, you know, moving forward um, in an era where there's so much negativity and, you know, a little bit of backwardness happening too. So, you know, we have just a couple more minutes uh, left on the show, and I want to give each of you the opportunity, and maybe Rob and Chris too. Are there any burning questions that um, – you gentlemen want to ask Fred and uh, Ernie? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to get it was a great conversation. I, 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 was, I didn't want to interrupt and ask a question because it was very enlightening to me, and I appreciate that. So two, two questions. Uh, let me th throw them out, and then uh, you can answer them in any order you want. So one of you uh, with your farm business for, for four generations. So one, one thing that's important to me, I, I understand that soil can become dead and I want to know how you keep that healthy. And the second thing is, what are both of your gentlemen's view on uh, ver indoor vertical farming? Well, I've seen things uh, are growing crops with less soil contamination, less insect infestation, less water, simulated solar radiation, less pesticides, less energy. But what are, you, what are your feelings on that? Well, I'll just say that. Fred, why don't you go first? Uh, I just will say that that's it's, it's everything. It's, there's no silver bullet, but lots of silver buckshot, and all yeah. those things have to be pursued, and they have to be done. But the, to answer your first question about dead soil, uh, that's one of the things that uh, that uh, we are becoming so much more aware of than we ever did before. You know, and, I, and in some ways, I hate to say this, but I kind of blame our land grant universities because we always had this kind of a, a recipe type of, of mentality. You put this, this, and this on there, and you'll raise this. And, and we, for years, we've done that. We have not paid enough attention to what's happening in the soil, only what's happening above the soil. And I think that, the, that, that we're finally realizing that's, that's the whole thing with regenerative agriculture, agroecological, whatever you want to call it. We have to pay more attention to the microbes. Soil microbes are the key to the, the future. And the more, the more um, variety of microbes you have in the soil, uh, the more the more productive your soil is going to be. So that's how you that's how you create and regenerate your soil, is by planting a variety and a much biodiverse uh, amount of, of uh, things you plant versus you know just a monoculture where, and that's the whole idea of, of putting a cover crop in there because if you put a, you know a, a small grain uh, cover crop in between uh, corn and soybeans, it's amazing the type of microbe that you actually produce and grow which will not only um, uh, give you a yield bump, but it also uh, is, is great for, uh, for uh, keeping weeds down. I mean, you're fighting weeds. One of the things that, that I've really been able to do with, with cover crops is I've been able to cut my herbicide costs way down because when something's growing, it's, it's about, it's about uh, competition. So when you've got something growing, the weeds uh, can't grow because there's no room for it. So at the same time as I'm doing that, I'm building the soil. So there's, that is a huge huge issue of, of dead soil, and that's one of the things we've been working with the, uh, the folks in, uh, 
in the European Union as well as South Africa in the whole GAXA thing is, is building, rebuilding that soil. Yeah, great, great questions, uh, Rob. Ernie, did you want to respond to those questions as well? or? Well, maybe just a quick comment about the controlled environment production systems. They're, they're booming all across the country. Uh, we saw a lot of that in Ohio as we helped the Ohio uh, agricultural conservation leaders write an action plan for the future of Ohio agriculture, where they see firsthand the opportunity to invest in these sometimes vertical, sometimes not, but controlled environment production systems that are going to have an opportunity to bring agriculture back to urban areas because some of this can be located in, in inner city areas. Yeah. So I think uh, they'll never replace conventional produced foods, but they certainly can supplement them, and they can also help reduce greenhouse gas emissions because we can reduce the amount of transportation that we're doing and moving fresh fruits and vegetables across the country to satisfy markets. So um, another great example of innovation and technology are going to help lead the climate smart movement and why we need companies like Toro right in the middle with us helping to advocate for those tools as we work throughout the UN system. Yeah, just a little little bit of all of the above that we need. We had a previous guest, um, Julian Cribb, a journalist from Australia who wrote a book, uh, Surviving the 21st Century, who basically said that, yeah, we're never going to get rid of or be able to you know, get along without um, broadacre ag, but a lot of ag needs to come into the cities, which is what we were just talking about, you know, urban agriculture, vertical agriculture. Because quite frankly, that's where all the nutrients are. <laughs> and, you know, we need to give back some of the land to the environment as well to have uh, a healthy environment. So-